Today we're sitting down with Thomas Little, ink maker, alchemist, and garden hermit. At the time of this call, he also worked as a park ranger in North Carolina, garden hermit check. And during said call, which was well over two hours long, he was wandering the park. Hey, who knew middle of nowhere North Carolina had better connectivity than my own house? He also kind of reminds me of a modern day Radagast from The Hobbit, but you know, not unhinged. From sunrise to sunset, between bush and bracken, Thomas expresses his values in ink blotching and across scroll, telling the tales of the environments that surround him. The inks themselves a token of an ecosystem governed under an infrastructure that only seeks to profit in its ownership of our natural world, so-called ownership, and the ways in which he navigates his internal as well as external dialogue in finding his footing between community and nature. Don't ever tell your kids the likes of alchemists and witches don't exist, because if you look a little closer, they might just be your neighbor, your local baker, or in this case, a park ranger. This is The Rural Pen with Thomas Little. A quick heads up, we're dealing with an overseas call here, so the audio may reflect this. Coming to you from North Carolina and Amsterdam, the Netherlands. I think it would be safe to say I was a fairly odd child. Um, I, uh, I was pretty precocious. Um, I grew up in a uh, in the woods, pretty much. <laughs> my my mother and father uh, bought some land in the, one of the most uh, rural counties in North Carolina, and we had lived about a mile away from the paved road. And uh, so um, I had a lot of. Uh, a lot of nature to entertain me as a kid. Um, and I was encouraged by my mother and my father. Um, and so I also had a pretty active imagination, um, just as I was sort of, uh, didn't really have a choice. I didn't have much other stimulation <laughs> other than like my surroundings, um, and the plants and the animals and the river. Um, uh, yeah, and, you know, I like to draw a lot when I was a kid. I've always sort of been a creative person. Um, my mother sort of encouraged that. Uh, yeah, I think that's about me. And was there much of a community where you were at? Did you have, say, friends that you would be doing this with? Or was it was it pretty, like, isolated? It was definitely isolated. Um we didn't, um, and I think that was sort of part of the intention of my my father's uh, and mother's idea of um, moving to where they moved. So they um, were sort of uh, part of the latter part of the back to the earth movement, um, sort of living off the land kind of thing. Um, I think my dad had sort of an experimental mindset when it came to... Uh, starting his family um he uh he built boats out of uh, out of wood um that felt fallen wood in our in the swamps that we lived in so he was very much sort of in tune with um the place that we grew up um and of course we lived next to a river so that makes sense for have boats just come and go so a lot of my a lot of my um formative years were definitely in, involved in the river and with working with my father and my and my brother. Um, but as far as the community goes, we really didn't have a whole lot. Um, and that was definitely 
I definitely felt that growing up um, in school. Um, I definitely felt a little bit different uh, for a variety of reasons, but definitely that was that was the contributing factor. <laughs> and if you don't mind me asking, how do you feel that this has impacted you on, say, more of a long-term spectrum? Um, I, I feel like... Well, I feel like it's given me a perspective um, in how I sort of uh, perceive the world. Uh, I definitely, I've, since I, I've always sort of, since I've grown up from this, um, from this vantage point, <clears throat> I sort of like feel like I, I, I see things a little bit differently. Um, that uh, especially now, and you see, this is sort of part of part of my whole life. You know, I left the area that I grew up in, and I've come back to it since. Um, so that probably also adds to my perspective of things. Um, but I don't know. I feel like I appreciate. I feel like I appreciate things a little bit more richly than I would say a lot of people do in the rural area that I live. I feel like a lot of people don't quite know how lucky they are to have a lot of natural beauty around them. Um, and uh, I, I don't like to take that for granted. And I feel like this segues perfectly into kind of what you do today. If you could give a basis to your profession currently. Well, yes. Um, well, uh, I sort of have... Two professions, I like to think. Um, <laughs> I, uh, by day, I am a humble park attendant. <laughs> um, I work at a uh, state park um, here in North Carolina uh, at one of the uh, Bay Lakes. Um, so I'm sort of surrounded by nature. Uh, I live here at the park um, in the barracks that they have here. It's really nice. I sort of like to entertain um the idea that I have sort of a, a monastic lifestyle where I sort of, um, I'm like a modern day garden hermit where I tend the grounds and, uh, you know, lead a quiet little life. And by night, <laughs> I'm, uh, I like to make ink. I'm an ink maker. Um, I, uh, I've, geez, it sounds so simple to say I'm simply make ink but ink is a lot of is, is, is sort of part of my philosophy on it's the, it's the lens through which I view things entirely um, yeah I sort of like to take it as the, the the baseline from which to experiment to do, to do the thought experiments I guess you'd say um, I sort of like to think of ink and creating ink and like how it is a minstrum for our thoughts and our expression as a as, as humans but also taking that expression and um rethinking it in terms of um natural patterns in the world um and the universe for that matter um that's a little bit grandiose, but... No, no, I, I mean... I can winter that down. <laughs> it's... Your inks, they're... 
I, I see them as exactly that. They're an extension of yourself and your perspective and the cycles that you're going through in tandem with the natural world. And you in your day job, you're constantly outside. And to be able to simultaneously, you know, forage um, and see what is available in, your, in these natural resources and to be able to work like that and express that through your inks, I mean... It's not grandiose at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I do, and I, and I, and I, I like to think, you know, I, I feel like I really, um, sort of carved my my, my little existence out here, uh, and I've made it. I was actually just talking to my friend last night about um, how, as a kid, I always wanted to be a monk when I was little, and I'm never really quite sure. He was, he's an astrologer, so he's like, oh, well, it's because you're Virgo and Pisces line or something like that, and. Uh, but, like, you know, he was like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, and I kind of realized that, like, throughout my life, I've sort of been seeking that sort of, like, that institution of, um, like, harmonizing with the natural world and also exploring, like, some more of the deeper mysteries of, of existence. Um, once again, a little bit lofty. Um, but, I mean, also, I feel like, you know, even though I say it's lofty, I feel like it should be something that everyone engages in um you know i feel like it's it, it by having a just like naturally inquisitive perspective on the world i feel like it should uh i mean it makes your life richer um and of course you know i don't i guess maybe i'm a bit anti-authoritarian you know i don't like taking my information from an authority and just say oh well that's it <laughs> i'll just accept this <laughs> i um i like to think i like to you know i question I questioned things, and that was also another element of uh, my childhood. I was always asking questions to the point of infuriating my teachers, my parents. Oh, I can relate to that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, I think a lot of creative types, I think, had had that as part of their upbringing, or their coming to um, fruition as an individual. Um, and it's a beautiful way to exist in the world. It really is. I mean, it's, I always think it's uh, vital, really. To be moving yeah. forwards and to progress, we have to question why. I can always just, like, link it right back to, say, math class. And, mm -hmm. you know, you have, like, your formulas and, like, this is the way it is. And you're sitting in class and it's like, okay, I, I get it, I get it, but why? Why? And it would infuriate <laughs> the professor. Yeah. Oh, I was, I was, I was really sharp in math. I was always top of my class in algebra and stuff. Um, th but those things have long since faded from my, my little brain. Um, so the, uh, but you know, math is still like totally fascinating to me. And like, you know, even like in something like math where everything seems cut and dried, um, two plus two is always four. Um, there's still like so much rich and broad and mysterious realms with just within mathematics which yeah. seems like it's you know it's done like people are like oh that's like it's a it's a it's it's fossilized it's complete um which i mean is definitely like you know part of like our reductionist thought process where you know everything goes you know psychology goes to chemistry goes to um well psychology goes to biology goes to chemistry goes to um Physics goes to math, and like math is the baseline foundation from which you know everything's rationally expressed. So therefore, every person is pretty much just a really complicated equation. But 
even if you get down to that level, um, yeah, it's not that simple. There's so much strange exactly. things yeah. um, that goes that go on in math. Like that can even be expressed as like you know everything to the zeroth power is one. How does that even make sense? <laughs> 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 I don't get it. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, mysteries everywhere. And it's worth pondering. I mean, I love how you described your work as a holistic synthesis of art and science and magic. And how did you get into natural ink making? How did I get into natural ink making? Um, well, so I guess the first time I made ink, I didn't really know I was making ink. Um, it was fifth grade and it was a science project. And, um, or maybe it was a history project. It was a history project, and we had to pick somebody to talk about. And I picked Houdini um, because, I don't know, I was in fifth grade, magic was cool. It still was cool. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I was like, yeah, Houdini's great. And I was like, well, then I, oh, I could do a magic trick for part of my, you know, presentation. And one of the magic tricks was, uh, it was called the wine to water, to wine to water um, trick where, you take a glass, you pour it into one glass, it turns dark. You pour it into another glass, it turns clear again. You pour it into another glass, and it's dark again. Um, I did that trick. Uh, I did that trick uh, in front of class. But before then, we were, you know, we were, we were, we were, we were pretty poor when we grew up. Um, and it was like right around the time of my birthday, and I was telling my dad about this thing and this trick and what chemicals involved. And he went out to the drugstores, like all over town, trying to find these chemicals. We still had old-timey drugstores where you could actually go and buy chemicals over the across the shelf. Wow. And he um, he bought all these things for me. And uh, in essence, it was pretty much just like a little chemistry set. Um, but the ingredients within that chemistry set were the identical ingredients to make ink with. It was a iron sulfate, tannic acid. Um, trick uh and i was like oh wow huh, neat um fast forward like uh poof geez to my 20s my late 20s um i've been living in new orleans for a long time uh totally wildly creative times um but uh my mother passed away and so i find myself coming back to where i grew up um and i came here and I was like, you know, I need to be around my family. Um, so I was like, okay, how am I going to exist here? Because it is vastly different from New Orleans in that there's really like, the culture's not nearly as rich and as exciting and vibrant. <laughs> so like, how am I going to survive? And it was definitely some hard times where I was like, oh God, how am I going to go on to the next day? So I took like jobs, the only jobs I could really take because, you know, there aren't jobs for, um, wildly creative performance artist slash filmmaker slash puppet maker um, in this area. So, you know, I was taking, I was the waiter, you know, doing all the little like jobs you do to get by. And I, uh, one day I was like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. This is just, it's killing me. So I quit my job as a waiter and I was like, I'm not going to work in the service industry again. Um, it's just, I just can't do it. So I was like, well, what can I do? I was like, I could draw. And so I was like, well, um, I can make ink. I know how to make ink. Because at this point, I had done a little bit of reading. 
about ink. Um, and I remembered uh, that old trick of making um, the water to wine trick. And I was like, oh, well, huh. so that's just that. I can make ink. And I can make ink with things that are here in my yard. Because I didn't realize at the time, but tannic acid is actually something that um, was everywhere in plants. Um, so I was like, that's it. I can make ink. I can live off of what I make and what I what I do with what I make. And I found a little on Craigslist for an administrating gig. And uh, I applied. And... Uh, that one didn't pan out, but then the next one did. Um, and so then I became like a freelance illustrator for about four years doing um, kids' books uh, for Vanity Press. I mean, it wasn't like anything huge or anything, but I was living off of what I was ma- like. I was living in a, I was living doing what I enjoyed with what I made. And that felt really like. Um, I don't know if I'd say, well, empowering, I'll just say empowering. Um, but it, it was more than empowering. It's also sort of just like, it felt natural and right and, um, uh, holistic. I mean, like I felt like I was building my, um, my world at that point. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, I don't know. Does that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're coming into an alignment with yourself and building upon that. And then, like, and that evolved. Uh, like, so I sort of, like, I decided, you know, I need to, I, I want to experience, like, a little bit more of a, you know, a, um, a lifestyle where I can focus more on my artwork and stuff. And I found this job here at the park. I thought, this is cool. I can augment my illustrating jobs with my, this little, this little parking job, and I also can live here for free. Um, so I was like, that's, that sounds great, and I'll live here, you know, I was, I was like fantasizing, I was like, I can have my little monk existence here, and uh, yeah, and I, and you know, I don't know if I even was thinking about it in those terms at the time, but in retrospect, I was like, of course, that's what you were doing. Um, and so I found this job, and I started working here, and gradually, like, my illustrating jobs sort of dried up, they were probably drying up a little bit before then, too. Um, and I was okay with that, um, because I really wanted to focus on sort of like my own personal expression. And so like ink throughout that point was like, you know, sort of a fascinating thing for me. Um, I started making the ink that I make. I don't know if we can, I segue into the actual inks that I'm making. The ink that I make is, uh, it's sort of a variation on iron ball ink, which is a very old ink recipe that dates back to around 11, 10 or 1100 AD, uh, maybe earlier. Some scrolls have indicated there was metallic inks used before then. Yeah, in fact, I think there's actually even an old Roman tattoo recipe that predates, is like, it is BC, is really old, that utilizes the same ingredients, but there's no proof that it was actually used for writing. Uh, but still, it's pretty wild. So, like, I had no idea there was, like, this huge history behind, like, this, from what I remember, it's just being, like, a little magic trick, and also what happens to be, like, what I used to draw with. Yeah. So that history of that substance was like whoa this is crazy so I like sort of became obsessed with it and um and and part of like part of the obsession um well first of all as far as like the alchemical elements go I mean there's iron sulfate which is uh used in like all manner of like um alchemical 
I mean, it's it, it's it's very present. I shouldn't say it's used in, but it's like it's present in a whole lot of alchemical um, thoughts and like things. Uh, vitriol is the official. I mean, it's it's what it is. Iron sulfate. Iron sulfate is vitriol, green vitriol specifically. Now, a lot of people think vitriol is like sulfuric acid, which is you know. And I mean, now when people say like, "Oh, that's such a vitriolic statement" or whatever, that is what they're referring to. It's just like it's causticness. Really, that expressing oil vitriol, which is distilled from vitriol. Um, so there's a little confusion there. So whenever I say vitriol, people are like, "Oh my god, you're talking about like acid stuff." I'm like, "No, it's not quite like that." <laughs> um, I'm taking notes. But- I'm writing all of this down. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I post I, yeah, and if you want to you can go back through some of my older posts I mean like I sometimes cover territory on that over oh and, yeah um, yeah I have definitely <laughs> deep dive there's been rabbit holing <laughs> um, so yeah but that's that part but what was really interesting to me was the gall part so there's it's iron gall and ink and it's a mixture of iron sulfate and um gallic acid which is derived from galls that you find on oak trees and so but and i was started reading about oak galls and that was a whole other world it was just like fascinating this life cycle of this wasp so oak galls are caused by this wasp that um burrows and makes a little like agitated area on a tree that then develops into this almost like fruit that is like wouldn't happen otherwise, except between the interaction between this this plant and this insect. Um, it looks completely different from the rest of the tree, um, and uh, it's just like this sort of strangely miraculous development. It's like the uh, it's like this it's sort of like this parenting, or this like you know, it's like a, it's like the tree nurtures this wasp. I mean, you know, people would say it's a parasite. I don't really think of it quite like that because it, it doesn't really hurt the tree. The tree's not dying from these things. Um, it's just sort of like a service the tree almost just provides. This fusion of nature. Yeah, and but then when looking at the wasp, the whole and the wasps life cycle. There's so these wasps, they're the gall wasps. They alternate sexes um, generationally, which blows my mind. So like you have. A wasp that here's the cycle. So that you have the gall. From the gall hatches one generation of wasps, and this wasp is sexed. So it's a male and a female wasp, and they have wings, and and they fly and they breed. The male dies. The female burrows underground and goes to the roots of the tree. At that point, people aren't really sure what happens, um, which is amazing too, because like you know, it's I'm still a mystery. What they do know is that after what happens next is that a parthenogenic female emerges from the ground, the next generation. So that sexed female goes underground, lays eggs. The next generation is entirely female um, and also wingless and looks completely different from the other species. And that wingless female climbs back up the oak tree, um, makes a little agitation in the plant tissue to cause the galls and lays its egg there. And then the cycle begins again. So you have like this crazy, and like there's so many like rich like um, mythologies you could you could get from it. You have like this tree of life. You have like this forbidden fruit. 
you have like this parthenogenic <laughs> virginal birth kind of thing. All these circles of life and how this rotation is represented throughout so many different rituals in nature and the fact that they haven't even recorded what happens throughout the entire process yet. I mean And it's like and it's great and you know it's also and so another part of that whole thing was you know who Alfred Kinsey is? No. He was uh, the Kinsey Report. Um, they made a movie. I think Liam Neeson was in it. Alfred Kinsey was sort of like the first uh, sexologist, I guess. He was one of the uh, that statistic, like you know, every one in ten person is a homosexual, sort of thing. He made, he sort of like set the stage for the whole sexual revolution in his studies of like people's you know sexual nature, and sort of broke open the doors about like whoa, so people are like you know not what we thought. They had completely different um, uh, sexual proclivities that, you know, you know, at the time were like so taboo. But in reality, like, so, like most of the people had them. But he began his career studying gall wasps. So he studied gall wasps and was fascinated by their like alternating sex generation, sexual generations. And so he like amassed this huge like collection of galls from like throughout like the Americas, and. Um, before, like, one of the things that I think is so tantalizing about his 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 work um, prior to his like sex studies was um, he was on this mission because gall wasps they like they breed and then they uh, they lose their wings and then they go underground to their their host tree and they do their thing. So as far as their migration pattern goes, like it's pretty small. Like they go from tree to tree. They don't like really fly, you know, great distances. And so because of that. They, he could, you could trace, like, you could almost like geographically trace their evolution. So he was on this quest to find like the Urgall wasp or the Ur tree, the tree where like these wasps like from which it all stemmed. Yes. So like there was this like <laughs> I like to imagine like this this beautiful huge tree that had like um where like this where like this whole like life cycle came from um this like. Gall wasp Eden. <laughs> oh, it reminds me of like the ultimate tree of mana. Yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, the tree, like the tree of, of life that's in so many mythologies. Like, oh, you know, geez, it goes back. But like, you know, seeing this, of course, like you know, seeing this through the lens of like this little wasp. But he abandoned that. Um, he he quit. He didn't. He didn't find that grove because he started getting involved in like the sex studies of you know humans. Which, you know, completely changed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. But uh, that was, that's another, that was, that was the whole other trip that I was on. And like, this is an ingredient in ink. Um, and in that way, I was like, this is the, the fruit of knowledge. And I started thinking about like skull wasp as like sort of uh, mythopoetic uh, creature um, that sort of like uh, began like this, you know, this, this, the, the, the creation of ink and like this, this sort of like this, this whole like um, wave of uh, of knowledge even though ink you know predates iron gall ink uh, uh, is relatively young ink ink goes way 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 back as far as like a substance if you want to even want to find ink as something um, but in my mind I was like going there you know <laughs> yeah. I, I might be rambling if you ever want to take the reins just let me just just you know holler because I will, I will go down many, many holes. I mean, I'm, a, I'm entirely the student here. So you're basically always outdoors. 
whether that's in your day job or for foraging purposes, what has this very intentional approach to, say, working with your surroundings and overall dialogue with nature actually taught you about yourself? Well, um, I think more than anything, it's taught me, um, it's helped me eliminate myself in a way, you know? It's helped me understand that, you know, the, uh, the things that I, you know, use to define who I am aren't quite as important as they, they seem to be at one point. I feel like what, what, is, what being surrounded by nature is, it's helped me realize that, like, you know, I'm really just like the sort of tenuous node in like the, the relationship between so many things within the natural world. Like I'm really just sort of like almost this, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I guess it's helped me. It, it, it's helped me like let go of a lot of my, of, of my ego and also feel like a little bit more, um, in harmony, uh, with myself and with the world, uh, through that, um, relinquishing. I like to, I, 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 I read a lot about and listen to different uh, philosophies on like how how the world exists um, and how humanity is really so such a small part of it. And I I feel like that is something that is very approachable for everyone. There's so many like um, ways that people can let go of themselves and let go of the pain that they hold on to and like so much of like the uh, disease of of life of quote unquote life human life uh, societal life just by sort of like dropping out and like realizing you know I'm just sort of like this temporary flesh puppet that's wandering around all these <laughs> photosynthesizing organisms <laughs> we're microcosms to the macrocosm and there's I always feel a sense of such safety when I go back to nature and everything else falls away and, you know, you realize I'm just a part of nature and this is where I'm meant to be. I'm very envious of your job in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and in engaging with nature in this way, I mean, I also, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to turn my back on what's happening and like... The, the the hive world of humanity, you know, it's because it's it's real and it, it it has real consequences, and I see them here in the park, um, like and you know I love my job, but there's a whole lot of things that uh, I don't like about my job, and especially like part of that is like the the state and how it um, it. <laughs> It has a mission statement that it sort of loves to like flaunt, but at the same time not really observe. Actually, yeah, um, I'd love to touch on this because mm-hmm. I mean, today there's def- there's I don't think any of us anymore could really kind of pull back towards a state of isolation and kind of ignore what's going on. Like we do, we we can't afford that anymore, and there has to be equilibrium. We have to find balance in bridging these two worlds, and so. I, from your perspective, I love to hear what that is like 
within your setting, how kind of the state is going around the management of its environment and that connection with people. Well, I mean, so the the mission statement is um, conserve, um, conserve, educate, and recreate. That is sort of like I think as far as the state of North Carolina, I think that's sort of like their their uh, their motto. Um, and but that is that is like what is conservation and um, what is recreation and uh, uh, education. Um, the thing is, at the end of the day, it's about revenue. Um, and that's just, you know, completely unrelated, um, to what's important to the, uh, to what parks need to be. Um, there's a lot of like complete wasted money going on in, in parks. Um, but there's always like, oh, we, the parks need more money because we need to do this. So this is an example of what is, I find very disheartening. I've heard from like the higher ups. Um, there's a word going around that they're going to uh, legalize um, alcoholic beverages in state parks, which, in my mind, and this is not coming from any place of judgment, as far as like you know, I totally like my beer and wine all day long. Um, but I know and I've seen that this is going to have a detrimental effect across the board, and especially in the like the sense of conservation. Because um, people are going to trash the place. Um, they're going to trash the place. Um, it's going to be violence. <laughs> there's going to be um, uh, lots of like reckless, risky behavior. Um, and the only reason, and the reasoning is, is the state feels like it would bring in more money. Yeah. And. First of all, it's ridiculous because all, what they need to do if they're really concerned about money is like cut all the wasteful spending that they do if that was really the thing. Um, but that just goes to show like they're totally putting um, putting that as a priority over the important thing, which I think the, I think the more important things in a park is conservation and education. Um, recreation, yeah, I mean, enjoy nature, but, you know, it's not, you know, it doesn't, recreation doesn't mean trashing it. Um, which I think a lot of people think of when they think about, oh, I'm going to have a fun, it's recreation, I'm going to have a party, it's going to be fun, and, you know, whatever. Um, and I see that a lot uh, here. Um, I'm sorry, maybe I'm venting a little bit. Um, no, I mean, like, the fact is, is that we're turning to our nature as exactly that, as recreation, when it's not recreation at all. It's our, nat- it, it's our home, and that when we see that as a chance to kind of take a break from everything that's going on in our lives and just vent out into the natural world, there has to be that, that shift in perspective there. Where are you seeing that spending going to that you would say is just complete waste of time? Because I, I can almost see it's kind of a, a vicious circle going on here as well where they're trying to bring in more people and with with a means of alcoholic beverages and like kind of legalizing legalizing that but on the other side it's it, there's a vicious circle world you're you're just going to be across the board seeing a complete complete neglect and like trash all over the place um well so as far as like wasted money goes there's a lot of like 
there's a lot of people who want to put their finger in the pie. So if we want to build a structure, and this is an interesting example, so if we want to build a structure, we have to submit a plan. That plan has to go through a board. That board goes into a black box in Raleigh that I don't know if anyone knows what happens there. It comes out, gets, has like, you know, lots of little stickers on it. It's sent back to the park. Um, the park draws up a budget or like, you know, how much they think it would happen. It gets sent back. So there's like this back and forth that takes place over years. And I, I'm serious, like two years at least, if you want to have something done. Um, and then it goes, so like, all that is like money. All that is people like, you know, justifying their existence <laughs> or justifying their job by saying, well, yeah, I had to like, I had to, you know, change things because that's what I do. Even though in reality, like if you just want to build a shed, just build a shed, you know, that's all you need to do. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's like, there's so much in the chain of the, in the bureaucratic chain that gets eaten up. And uh, that, I mean, that's one way that things could be hard down. It's just like, you don't need this. You don't need all this. Um, and, and when it goes into that black box, really like, you don't know where it's going. It's going into the general fund. And the general fund can be spent on almost anything. And I mean, <laughs> lavish parties, like as an example, like, you know, the state, there's definitely been places where, um, I've heard stories where, like, you know, they go to some uh, workshop, quote unquote, and like, but there's like a bar and like people are drinking and like, there's like this whole thing. It's like, you know, that's one money that like, where did that money come from? Like, there's only one place it could have come from. Um, and uh, like, that's an example. Like people are just having fun with it. So having fun with that money um, and spending it on things that are like, you know, not vital. And yeah, um, that's, that's one way that I see um, things being sort of, uh, um, it's, it's things can happen a lot more organically within a park system efficiently, cost efficiently without having to go through this like weird filtration system of bureaucracy where money is spent and then it goes somewhere mysterious that may or may not be a uh, fun money bag. I mean, know? we've seen how, how not even within park systems, but systems in general, the systems that we've set up as a society that it's always been with the intention of profit. How am I going to profit? How am I going to consume? How am I going to sustain that profit in consuming? And I find this really interesting where a lot of initiatives now are looking at nature and the template of nature and how in biomimicry we can start implementing that within businesses and even banks are starting to look at that as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it just goes right back to the fact that if something is done with the intention of money and profit, yet you're still trying to with this park, protect that ecosystem, there is just a complete imbalance. Yeah, yeah, like almost, uh, I would even go to say a complete um, conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, parks aren't retail places. And that's the justification with this alcohol thing is like, well, if people spend money, they're going to spend money on, on getting permits to have parties or whatever, to, or like, you know, wedding parties so they can have wine. Um, but the other like logic is like, well, you know, when people drink, they spend more money and I'm like, you know, this isn't like bourbon street, you know, it's like, this is a park. This is a, this is, it's not, it, it shouldn't be a priority for us to have to make money. It's not about that. It's about preserving 
and educating. If it were up to me, like, you know, I would say, like, slash recreation completely, but that's sort of such a broad definition. Like, I feel like recreation, you know, when kids are, like, playing around on a beach and they see a fish and it's amazing, I mean, that's, that's I mean, that, that's recreation. Yeah, you're really calling um, to question our definition of what is recreation and then bringing that into what do we do in this time? I mean, this just goes right back to people trying to escape from their nine to five and they're living for the end of the day and then releasing themselves in that way. And yeah, the entire cycle of burnout and just, yeah. just how we are as a society. Yeah, as nature can be there for people for like to help them after they like, go through their nine to five and like, you know, heal them in that way. I'm all for that. That's like beautiful. That's great. I, I love that. Um, but when it becomes like a, a place to engage in unhealthy, disconnecting habits, yep. um, that's when it's like, okay, that's not recreation. That's just, you know not healthy, you know, yeah. um, and like, you know, it's almost like I have to deal with so many people's, um, this is in quotes, like, you know, I have to deal with so many people's crap. I'm just going to come here and then let other people deal with my crap. Um, I mean, part of my job is a janitor. So I definitely like see people, I see people's despair. Um, I see people like, um, so all right, I'm going to touch on something for a minute. Like, you know, like the, the, the rise of the dollar store in the rural area, um, it sickens me uh, in this way that, so, you know, you have, what it is, is like, everything's a dollar. You know, I'm, I'm providing a cheap retail therapy to poor people so they can spend money and feel like they're, you know, valid. Um, <laughs> so people go and they buy like little inflatable toys and they come to the park and then, they have their day and then like they throw like you know they just leave inflatable things everywhere because like it's like well you know it only costs a dollar <laughs> i can just go back to the store and buy another one and it'll feel good also because i'm buying something because that validates me um which is just you know part of consumer culture it just um, perpetuates yeah yeah and that's how I, and I see that here at the park um and I, people, I mean, it's, and people, I think they buy things. I think it does. I mean, it makes them feel like, you know, I'm, I'm valid. I, I spend money. Therefore I have worth, um, when really it's just like perpetuating the cycle of waste and trash. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're I think, all... Did I get off topic? No, <laughs> I, this is exactly what I want to be touching on with these conversations because right now you could look to say the community within you know more hub, hub places like New York, uh, Los Angeles, like here Amsterdam, um, big cities and people are starting to implement more of a slow movement. They're really calling into question what am I inviting into my life? Where is my dollar being spent on? Like do I need to have all of this? And we're consuming to feel something, to feel something, yeah. and that's only going to be sustained on a short-term basis. But when it's like, say, 
still very much in like um, our corporeal uh, spectrum like oh if I have this beautifully handcrafted jacket then I'm going to appreciate that for so much longer if it's ethically sourced and I know like that the people who have put the time and the effort behind that like say the culture and the heritage and the entire story behind that but on a deeper level it's human connection I feel like we're all really calling into question now, I am consuming to fill something within me, but we're really finding that when we connect with people, and that's, it's, it's like this, it's like we're trying to, we're trying to like touch on something and we don't really know quite, I mean for many people, they do feel that they have a definite, uh, that they, they, they have a definite um, answer to this. But it all kind of comes back to human connection, human connectivity, and coming together as a people. And connecting to the the, rest, the, the more than human world. Yeah. Um, as part of that, um, and you know, I, and I can see, like, uh, I guess before I was, before I, I felt like I was a lot more of like a misanthropic environmentalist. Like I was like the hell of evil, let the let the earth take over um, again. Um, but what I'm seeing now is like um, social justice as a step towards environmental justice. Like we have to learn how to treat each other better before we can treat the environment better. Um, and I don't know; it's still a concept I'm still like you know working with in my mind. Um, uh, and like you know, maybe it's not quite related to my work, but like it's something I think about. Because sometimes at the end of the day, I'm still a misanthrope. I'm like, ah, screw it. <laughs> Let the weeds grow. <laughs> um, Take over. Yes. Uh, but, I mean, it's not it's not fair. Um, because we do have to heal ourselves before we can heal the environment if we're going to approach it that way. Um, and, like, part of that is, you know, it's, it's saying, like, you know, you're buying some plastic thing made that was shipped across the, you know, across the world, made by people who are, you know, almost enslaved, if not genuinely enslaved. And, like, yeah, there's no human connection there. And people don't even think about, like, the life of the person that made this object um, and, like, what sort of world they live in. It's the intention behind everything. And you're just seeing that on a first-hand basis with the park and the intention with which they want to expand on, and that's revenue. It's profit, and the vicious circle just continues. And, you know, also part of, like, living and working in the park, you know, it's like we manicure spaces for people to enjoy nature. And that is, you know, it's always sort of a tricky thing for me. It's like we're making places where it's okay for people to enjoy nature, but by that, at the same token, we're, like, making it less natural. Yeah. So that's, like, this, you know... uh, paradoxical like idea and in what ways are um, you doing that what in what ways are you doing that oh we mow i mean <laughs> we mow the grass we weed eat uh we kill poison ivy we kill wasps um the like uh, you know in the in those ways and i mean yeah i understand like okay wasps can hurt people and you know poison ivy can hurt people i mean i understand these things um but then there's other things like we have this shoreline where we, I'm walking by it right now. Like we weeded it down so people can see the water. Um, 
but I'm like, there's all these like plants that like live on the shoreline. Um, that like, you know, that's their, their like, you know, uh, interstitial environment plants. They can only live there, but we are like getting rid of it so people can look at the view. Yeah. But that's where education um, comes in. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's parts of the park where the, that still exists. Um, but it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, it's, it's, it's a tricky subject because it, it needs to be accessible to people in order for the education to begin. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, at what point do you say, well, let's just mow the whole place down and like have a great big yard. <laughs> um, that's where like the recreation sort of starts, uh, superseding the conservation. Yeah. And I think that the parks, you know, you can't, you don't make money comes conserving something. Um, you barely make any money educating. Um, I would even say you don't make any money educating. Um, but you can make money from recreation, and like that bubble is swelling in that in that in that tripart thing where like, well, money's made. Uh, money's getting made with the recreation. That's I mean, that's sort of like becoming more of a priority, which it needs not be. We haven't talked much about ink. I'm sorry. This, this is something I'm really passionate about as well, and I've never heard the perspective of someone who is working within a park and yeah, that entire upkeep and like the the ecosystem of that business side. I do feel like you are expressing this and your values and the ethos through your work though. And I do really want to know as you are working with resources that run entirely on a regional and seasonal timeline, how this has somewhat reframed your own perspective in addressing situations or say learning to work with your own limitations in this case. Let me see if I can re-engage my mind and my ink perspective. Okay. <laughs> um, the eco warrior uh, has, has been triggered. Yes, I know. I was like, ah, um, but I mean, they're, they're tied. They are connected. Um, uh, so like I make ink, um, that is, that is sort of what I what I like to do. Um, I, it's it's it, the process is important to me um, as it touches upon like like I said, it's sort of the, the holistic synthesis of art, magic, nature, um, and uh, science. So like that, that that's a process, and like I, you know, I, and I have a hard relationship with art. I think I, I just made a post about like I don't really know what I don't really. Yes, I definitely want to touch on that as well. Yeah, I don't know if I'm making art anymore. Um, I don't really know if I want to make art anymore. Uh, but what I have been doing is like making these ink blots um, with my ink uh, and exploring what the uh, empty signifier is. Like the empty signifier being like an object that a sign in like semiotics, an empty signifier is a. So you have the signifier and the signified. So you see a stop sign. It's a red, oct red octagon. You know that what that means. It's a sign. It means stop. An empty signifier is a, an object that has no has no significance. Or as I like, as I read on Wikipedia, which I, I love this quote. It's like rather than emitting meaning, it absorbs meaning. Um, so like you have an object, uh, an ink blot um, that is subjective to whoever's looking at it um and i feel like in the world today like there is so much it's it's it's, it's there's, there's so much black and white there's so much like 
um, reaction to things. We're such a reactionary, like, oh, you said this, I feel the opposite. I'm going to say this. And it's back and forth like this. That's like the, the dialogue we have now, which is exhausting. And um, it just, it, it drains me. And to me, you know, speaking of here in America, maybe it's worldwide, I think, too. Um, oh, yeah. But, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that's also brought up, brought upon by, like, like um, comment society, where I'm going to leave a comment and enrage people because I have the veil of an anonymity <laughs> yeah. that protects me. Um, that's a whole other thing. I feel like this creating something that is inherently meaningless is in a way a therapy to look at something, to have it be like this mirror, this magic mirror of like sort of absorbing the meaning of what you're, what you're putting on it. And also providing, you know, uh, um, the way the inkbots are, it's like, I see this, oh, well, I see this. Um, it's not like, oh, you're wrong for seeing that. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, 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 it creates a healthy discourse um, in perspective of things and you know it in that in that way that's the that's the that's why I think is beautiful about them um, and I think what could be a healing element of them and, and so it's become sort of like a symbol oddly enough the empty signifier becomes signified um, of being a uh, almost uh, an invitation yeah yes an invitation to a conversation to the yeah. dialogue um, and, and this is something else to go back on wasps, like wasps, they have these beautiful markings on their face. It's called their clypeus. It's like a shield, like segment on their faces. Um, and in a wasp colony, you have the founders sort of like the queen or the one who starts the nest and like, you know, the other, um, lesser ranking queens, if you will, but they sort of determine their hierarchy by the markings on their faces. And if you look at the markings on their faces, they are ink blots. They're bilaterally symmetrical black markings. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they're completely organic and, like, beautiful, and they're exactly what ink blots are. Um, And they, like, they determine how they behave because of these things. And so, you know, I think about that, and I think about, like, the ink blots that I'm making, and, like, you know, it's uh you've switched it you've flipped it completely <laughs> i know it's, i mean it, 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 it's i don't i i still i struggle with trying to articulate the connections there um but like that was powerful to me it was a powerful like revelation i was like so these creatures like they communicate with like this these ink blots and then like other ways creatures communicate i love cephalopods I've, I've always loved cephalopods as a kid i like i was obsessed with cuttlefish um and uh like they communicate with ink too i mean they're like you know, the the the, the proto ink creature um but like in like exploring the ways ink is and markings are uh, in the natural world like you know cephalopods they do this thing they create this thing called a pseudomorph it's called the ink the um, Blanche inkjet maneuver, which I think also would make a great drag name. <laughs> um, but uh, it um, so like the squid is like there, and it's sort of like it's it's sort of creating this ink inside of it, it's sort of a more of a mucusy ink than a uh, regular uh, regular ink squirt would be. And they squirt the ink, and it sort of leaves a shape that is like reminiscent of the squid itself. 
And as it leaves that shape, the squid turns pale, it blanches. And so it's like as if it's leaving its form behind as it disappears. And for the predator to, to, to attack that blob of, of ink instead of the actual squid. So um, I sort of like to think about like ink blots in that way too. It's like, I'm leaving this impression of something, but the actual thing that it represents is gone. Um, it's like as soon as the ink hits the paper, like it's it becomes ossified. It becomes a, it becomes a thing, and the actual spirit of the ink is left. And I can sort of touch on like you know anthroposophic ideas behind iron and how it you know is integral to so many life functions on Earth. Um, I mean, which if, if I you, think if, I, I could I could populate a whole other um, interview with you maybe with that. that there's at least an underlying level of exploration and trust to the process, especially where I'm starting the testing new ingredients, a complete greenie, but how has your instinct helped form your practice? Because, I mean, I can only assume that you're still coming across all these new ingredients as well to some extent, or, you know, you're continuously formulating new things, and so where does that instinct come in? Um, I, uh, I have, my relationship with my instincts, um, is, I guess, I mean, I, 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 I can act impulsively often, but I also tend to intellectualize a lot of things. So I feel like my intellect, into my intellectualization of, of things is informed definitely by my intuition. Um, otherwise I wouldn't like go down like strange little, uh, avenues of, uh, explore, exploration without being like, you know, this rings true. Let's follow this. Why is it that like in my ink work, you know, it's like nobody wrote about ink. It's like sort of this meta thing. Like ink is, you know, kind of important, like in this way, like that it's a medium for us expressing ourselves for like, you know, thousands of years. And yet, like, it's not really studied as a thing. Maybe because no one thought it needed to be studied. But, that was, but obviously other people did because I found literature regarding that. Um, though not a whole lot of people thought about it. But I was like, let's explore this and how it is reflective of the times in the past of, like, uh, you know, like, why is it not um, explored? Like, why is it not, like, documented? Um, I like to like, my intuition almost always leads me to some place where it's like, uh, uh, an interstice between things where like, there's this like connection between things, but there's nothing really there, but there is something there, but it's not really like expressed. So that's sort of where I end up going. And I think that's probably a lot informed by my, a lot informed a lot by my just, you know, existing, you know, being in nature and, and being naturally inquisitive about, like, the processes of things. Like, you know, how do plants photosynthesize light? Is it quantum mechanics going on here? Um, I feel like that my curiosity is definitely, like, part of my intuition. I tend to go with where my curiosity wants to take me. So I think that would be 
be it. I, 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 I sometimes, I don't know, sometimes I have a hard time uh, articulating what my gut instinct is. Yeah, um, it's like, it's almost what you're saying there, where it's like, there is something there, but there isn't really. And it goes, you know, back to people's perspective of intuition and gut. They're like, I can't actually break this down into um, a spreadsheet to pitch at um, the company I'm working at and relating, like, the decision I just made. And the higher-ups aren't going to listen to, oh, this is my gut telling me this. The voice is in my head. It's a hard thing to put your finger on. Yeah, and that's beautiful. Um, You know, because, like, you know, as much as I like to, you know, sort of, like, you know, maybe analyze things, Ultimately, like, you know, you don't want to do that. Mystery is, like, it, it needs to be mysterious. Like, it needs to be, like, things we never know. Um, it, it, it's beautiful in that way. And I feel like, you know, my gut is the lodestone for mystery. It's like it, it guides me in a direction where I can enjoy the wonders of the world. That's your magic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel like that is, I mean, it is. It's it's. It, and, I, and, and the thing is, it's accessible to everyone. It's like everyone can have, and everyone has these feelings. I know it's an innate compass. And I just wish people could almost, you know, I feel like if everyone was more in tune with that, in tune with it, there would be, you know, I feel like there'd be a lot more harmony in the world. You know, who knows? Maybe not. Maybe it'd be terrible. I mean, <laughs> we could I bring. I, I don't think it would. <laughs> we we could bring that right back to taking care of ourselves first before we can take care of nature. And as we are an integral part of nature, we need to start with that. And I feel like a lot of people in not being in tune with themselves and being in tune with that intuition, they forego that entire process of learning who they are. What do they want to do here? What is their mission here? And you get lost in the nine to five. And then all of that, that, you know, that circle, that's where it, kind of really stems yeah yes and like and even like to extend like you know um you know in a more like spiritual way or religious way i should say like um i have conversations with some of my rangers and the people i work with and they you know uh you know i don't want to you know disparage anyone's belief systems or anything like that um but, you know, they, they talk about, like, you know, I don't believe that, you know, man was evolved from apes. Um, and I have a really hard time with that because I, it's not because, you know, it's not because they believe that. It's because I don't feel like they did the work to find that as an answer. I feel like they were, like, told that and, like, okay, that's good. That's good enough for me. Um, and I also feel like it's totally irresponsible as a um, – steward of nature to like just let that be the case but then like have all the wonders of nature around you that seem to indicate you know that there is like something like evolution or whatever you want to call it like you know like the the motions and movements and uh beautiful graceful things of life um that you're going to just reduce down to something that you know you have not really like done any sort of work on um, you're just like blindly taking it from authority that this is the way it is. And, uh, but then at the same time, and this really irks me, they'll quote Darwin back at me like, oh yeah, survival of the fittest, totally. And I'm like, you can't do that. You can't, 
to float Darwin and me and then tell me you don't believe that people came from apes. <laughs> and that's just like how social Darwinism is. I mean, like, you know, when Darwin came up with this like, you know, theory of evolution, um, or whatever, like, you know, when social Darwinism sort of came to the front, it's like so many people like were like, Oh, I like a lot of these concepts from Darwinism. I'm gonna apply them to capitalism, but ignore the scientific part of it <laughs> yeah um and uh that is like i mean it's it's just i guess it's it's kind of opportunistic um i don't know i feel like there are people and that's like it goes back to like sort of like you know people following their intuition and following their like you know natural innate curiosity to explore things i mean i'm not like you know saying you know there's no god or you know i'm not like i'm not gonna you know preach against people's belief systems that's fine like you know i respect whatever you believe i'm just saying like don't disrespect people who are like genuinely doing work with like understanding the spirit the mystery of the world like because you think you've already figured it out so that's what sort of like that was a, that was a that was a problem i had with some of my my rangers and workers, and I mean, you know, I don't. I just don't think that you know, if it's if it's being informed, if that's informing your perspective, haven't you really, truly understand and appreciate and um, educate about uh, the the park or the world in general? You know. <sighs> Sorry, I was getting ranty again. This right here is where. As people, we're learning to meet each other where where we're at. You know, no one is better or less than one another. We're all exactly the same. And one person is here in their journey. Another person is there in their journey. And all you can do is kind of live your own life. And if that resonates with someone, then that's, that's how your own message may spread a little. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's true. I, 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 I don't I don't I don't I'm not open enough with with them really about how I think and feel about about things in nature, mostly because if I were um you know, I I honestly I have a I have a I keep a shield of thick skin here at work just because I have to in order to get by as a thinking, feeling person. Um you know, I don't like it when, you know, they shoot a raccoon because it's getting at the trash cans. I sort of have to be, I have to wait, you know, be, <clears throat> I have to be that way. Hard, I guess. And I don't like it. Um, that's one aspect of my job I don't like is like sort of having to have this callous skin in order to survive. But the benefits are I get to enjoy nature. Yeah. <laughs> Every job comes with a, with a good side and a bad side. Yeah. I guess. Every part of the world comes with a good side and a bad side. And um, how would you how would you think that your coworkers and the work environment would say react if you opened up a little more? <clears throat> if you're comfortable, I don't wanna go into any oh, subjects no, no, no. that you don't want to discuss. Oh no no, I'm I'm fine with that. I've, I mean I've thought about this. Um I feel I feel like I wouldn't be taken seriously. Um, I feel like they probably already formed their ideas about, and I've heard them talk as much when other people 
say something about, you know, that's coming from more like a little bit more of a ecologically harmonious perspective. You know, I've heard them say things like, oh yeah, whatever, hippie, tree hugger, you know, dismissive, like, oh, I already have a box for you. I'm going to put you in it. Um, so I kind of feel like they would do that. I feel like that would happen. Um, and I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to put all my cards on the table yet because I feel like there's going to be an instance where I can say something that I think is valid and relevant to a situation that might change their perspective. Um, and I think I can do that better from the position of not being in a box yet or not being um, a tree hugger <laughs> where they might actually listen to me, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's sort of where I've, where, where I'm at with that. Um, you know, so I'm a gay man. So there's also like this whole, like, you know, you have to blend in to survive yeah. quality of, um, my life, especially here in the rural South, uh, of America. And, uh, you know, that's just sort of become my instinct of, you know, how to put on a mask and like wear it. The, asp- um, yeah, the, the protection of the self. Yeah. Um, and you know, that comes with its all his whole set of baggage and its whole like, um, convoluted methodologies, um, that you, that you sort of navigate, you have to learn how to navigate at a young age. And then also, you know, definitely have health, um, risks associated with it. Yeah. Um, but you know, I like to use it as a tool, you know, it's something that I have in my, in my, um, in my toolbox. So I definitely will like, you know, take advantage of the skills that I've learned and honed in order to survive. (laughs) Yeah. How does your color palette actually reflect this current phase in your life? Right now. So right now my inks, um, I do love the different colors of ink and like the different formations of ink through these things. Um, I work right now with iron, um, iron based inks. Um, as iron is also in like the sense of, uh, the nature of the substance of iron. Um, I feel like iron is a very powerful substance as far as like, it's, um, and I mean, sort of speaking, you know, there is a lot of like association with male aggression, war and all this other stuff with iron and Mars and like that sort of like kick. Um, but iron is also like this really, um, powerful sense of, of self, of like, of individual, um, which I like to play with because I like to divorce myself of ego, but like by having a substance that is also ego sort of centric, um, or ego like, a um, manifests it, it, it is just a, it, the way, the way iron presents itself in the universe, um, as being what it is like, you know, Mars has always been associated with iron and like, lo and behold, all these years later, when we actually like look at this, figured out what Mars is, it's covered in iron oxide. It is iron. That's why it was presenting itself as iron the yeah. whole time. <laughs> um, and like iron is like one of the, it's like the first element in the nuclear fusion process where energy is no longer in surplus. So like iron is like the, the death knell of stars. Um, iron 
all begins like when when the star starts making iron, it pretty much starts dying. It sort of like reaches its point, and entropy takes over, and it becomes another thing. So like in that way, iron is like this sort of like psychopomp of elements. Um, not to mention like magnetism and like the mysteries of mag- mag- magnets and like how that's like this whole. I mean, it's it was wild. Um, but also like goes back to like you know sort of like the lodestone of intuition. Um, because it guide, it's a guiding force. I feel like iron's a very guiding force. But to get back to color, <laughs> um, uh, all my all my iron inks or all my inks are iron based, and therefore iron sort of dictates the palette, um, which at the moment is red and black. Um, there's two other iron colors you can get: uh, blue and yellow. Um, they involve a little bit more of a chemical, uh, more of a chemical dance to get to, um, but. My inks being black and red, iron galotane, which is the iron um, uh, blacking that I make, and then um, iron oxide, which is the red ink that I make. Um, so black and red, and then like the idea of color saliency. Um, it's also called the hierarchy of color, which I don't really like because I don't like hierarchies. But like in languages of people. Um, it usually goes where like colors start appearing at certain points. So you have usually the first color, the first word color words that come in a language are black and white, like darkness and light. But the third is almost always red. Um, it is always red. So you always have black, white, red, and then after that, the other colors sort of fall into place. Usually, then it's green or yellow, and so on. Um, so red is like has like this primacy and the saliency for people when people look at it. Um, and I mean, also like, you know, when people like fall, you know, they, they, they get knocked out or whatever and come to reds, usually one of the first colors they start perceiving and then other colors start coming to light. So red has this like really, I mean, it's a powerful color. I mean, it is, I mean, I think that's sort of universally acknowledged. Um, and definitely within the manuscript tradition, um, red and black, you know, red is the rubric. Rubric means red. Um, red is the first letter or like the first phrase or like what is highlighted as important, which goes all the way back to Egyptian literature um, and black, which is like the body, the body of the text. And uh, so I like to think of like those things, um, th- like that in conjunction with the iron being like, you know, sort of like uh, uh, the individualization of spirit. And also, like having these these powerful, um, universal uh, colors in it. Like it's, 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 it's I, I, I want to reduce my palette to these like really simple colors. Not simple, but like these really primal colors. And uh, because of because of their because of their combined potency, also in conjunction with iron. Um, how's that? <laughs> That's amazing. I love your formulas. So how would you break down one of your recipes? Well, I feel like, well, I mean, you have to go with your curiosity. Um, and I feel like whatever, where people are at, I think I see the first thing to do is just play around with botanical inks. Like, you know, go out, get some grass stains on your clothes or like squeeze some berries. Um, that's always a fun place to start. It's a really, really, um, it's cool. Like, uh, when I was a kid, I always played what I call now uh, magic potions, where I just mix up lots of nasty stuff. Oh, yes. 
<laughs> um, and I still do now. I mean, I, I'm, now, I'm, now, I'm all, now I play magic potions for in real life. Um, but uh, that's sort of like where you, where I think people need to start. Like I think they need to start with their with their curiosity. Um, as far as bringing down a recipe, if they want to eat, um, I would say uh, one of the most the most time tested and true ink recipes is a simple carbon ink of soot, which is simply burning something and collecting the dust and mixing it with something like a gum. And you'd just be amazed. You'll see the, it, the darkness of it. The darkness of carbon is just like, I don't know. You could just stare into it. It, it just goes on and on and on. You could just look into it like it's a, like it's the void. Um, it's beautiful. I would say that like, that's a that's a great simple place to start, both in like making ink and also contemplating <laughs> the great beyond. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's lots of other ones. Get a, get some rust. Find some red dirt. Take that red dirt and squeeze it through some uh, a bed sheet, and then take that paint with it. Uh, um, get a rusty nail. Get some acorns. Um, Soak those things for a while and then mix them together. And there you go. You have like an iron tannate tan ink. There's so many ways. I mean, what is ink? All ink is is something that's colored that you put down on paper. It's like so, uh, it's anything. It's anything and everything. Um, our blood is ink. Our blood is probably the most individual, special, magical ink there is. Um, yeah. That we carry around in our bodies. We have so much of it. <laughs> I'm not saying like go ahead and make packs with anything necessarily, unless you want to. That's cool. That's cool. Um, but like that is like you know, I sort of like, like I love the democracy of ink. There's a guy named Jason Logan with the Toronto Ink Company. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's he's it's been fun. on the podcast. Oh yeah, he. I mean, his, his like, he could tell you his whole philosophy with ink um, is pretty wild and amazing, and. Uh, He's definitely someone that, like, you know, is is inspiration. I mean, his um, book is amazing as well. But I really love how in talking to you and in talking to Jason, you are practicing the same craft, but you're not. It's you each have such an individual ritual surrounding this. And, I mean, you've given an entire – you've opened up an entirely different world – from the context when I was talking with him, and yeah, it's 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 beautiful. Like like you said, what is ink? Wide open, whatever it is, just like put it down on paper. Yeah, I mean, and it's like an ink blot. It's like you know, it's, it it ties back in. Everything's so self similar. It all ties back into like an ink blot. It's all subjective. It's all or it's all it's all ready to absorb meaning. Like whatever it is. I don't know if you know someone else. I think you might want to interview sometime. Um, uh, do you know Heidi Gustafson? Um, Jason knows Heidi through Instagram too. Yes. Um, uh, do you follow her or? Yeah, yeah. Have you seen? She's got like this whole like amazing like like visceral attachment to red ochre um, that is just like um, like mind blowingly complete <laughs> yes. and is also totally an inspiration to me um and i feel like she definitely works very much intuitively and de very much with her gut as far as like her work with ogres um and also like it encompasses more than just like a red color on a stone wall um so i don't know 
just a, you know, throw that out there. I don't know. It might be fun to interview her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who are some of your other favorite ink makers? Oh, well, um, Tim McLaughlin in Artesian Ink. He's, he's <gasps> yes. a, a, yeah, he makes, he's beautiful. He's a beautiful inksmith. I mean, you worked this, with like, him. Yeah, I did. Well, yeah, sort of, we, you know, we've only worked through, um, through like the uh, Instagrams and all that. Um, but uh, the, uh, his, like, he, the way he like researches things, he's like so much more of like, he's like such a historian with it. Um, and like really like, like appreciates like all the stories that sort of come from like different colors and stuff. And uh, it's fun also watching him because I feel like he's also sort of becoming a little bit more experimental too. And like, sort of like in the vein of like, Jason, like, you know, sort of like, hey, anything, let's try, let's try this. I think, like, just recently he was like, I'm going to try lily anthers and make colors out of it. And, like, I don't know, maybe that was, maybe that's an old recipe. Maybe that's, like, something he was like, you know, I'm going to do this. And uh, it's great. Um, his work's really cool. Um, yeah, we just did a collaboration with some cochineal ink, um, which is, like, the little ground-up red bug um, that makes a beautiful scarlet. Yes, they were beautiful. Um, yeah, um... And that's that was cool. Uh, I try to. There's a lot of exotic colors that have really haunted histories that are like everywhere in the in the world. So there's a bulldozer going by. Sorry. <laughs> um. So like you know, Brazil is named. So there's Brazil wood, which made a beautiful red dye that was used as an ingredient for a long time. Um, but Brazil wood itself was known mostly um, from like South Asian countries in Europe. So when the Portuguese went to Brazil, they saw this tree that was very similar to the Brazil wood that they know of. They named the whole country Brazil. So there's like this whole country that's named after a red color, which is also interesting because it, it sort of like it says a lot about both the power of the color of red and also like colonial views of a place where, oh yeah, let's name it after the one, this one product that we're going to extract from it um, without contemplating like the whole, you know, its existence as a, you know, country um, of of people that live there. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so like that indigo, I mean, indigo has a really storied history with like, for the transatlantic slave trade going all the way back to like uh, indigo in India. Um, the Egyptians had indigo dyed textiles. Like it's got this whole beautiful, like patchwork history as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, like I try when I think when I make my ink, I try. I really try to think about like, okay, I found logwood the other day in a store. I have no idea what's going on with logwood. It might be just completely being deforested. Do I need this to have this in my ink? I don't think I do. Um, I'm gonna experiment with it because I heard about it and I think it's beautiful. But I don't want to like make it part of my process because you're bringing so much haunted energy when you do that. Um, and the iron, even like, you know, I make my iron. The iron that I from I dissolved from a Remington rifle from acid um, because at the time and I still stand by it. It's like you know, I was into the idea of transmuting weaponry into like um, instruments of of beauty and contemplation. So all my iron, all my inks have, all my iron-based inks are, have that gun as their base. But that's like a sort of whole other 
philosophy going on there. I mean, um, you have, there's such essence in the intentions with which you're making these inks. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I believe in the power of substance. <laughs> I'm a materialist that way, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's good to know where things come from and to know the story behind them. And that ties into the dollar store floaty balls that I fish out of the lake all the time. <laughs> yeah. As ironic as that is. Yeah. So, I mean, geographically, where would you love to go and be able to craft inks based on those native resources? If you could go anywhere. If I could go anywhere and do what I do. Work uh, your magic. I would want to work my magic in places. I, would, I, would I want to work my magic in cities, honestly. I feel like there's a lot of... One of the projects I'm working on is um, growing sumac, which I use now for my ink. I don't use oak galls because I don't want to disturb the little wasps' lifestyle. Um, and sumac works pretty well as a uh, substitute. Um, it also has a beautiful history um, as well. But, like, I have been figuring out how to germinate these seeds. And I want to make seed paper um, to bring and sort of, like, to recolonize urban areas as with a useful plant that um, is an ink orchard. I call them ink orchards, ink orchards um, because, like, you know, you can use them for that as well as a lot of other things. It's a very useful plant, sumac. Um, but uh, I think that I would like to – I don't. I mean, I love – there's lots of beautiful things. There's, like, beautiful plants that I'd love to see that are, like, in exotic locations. There's a plant called the chanchi berry in um, the Andes that uh, has this beautiful red ink that turns black that apparently can survive the corrosion of seawater, um, but also has like this sacred use among like the indigenous people there. Um, I mean, I'd love to see those things. I'd like to, you know, look at them, but at the same time, you know, I feel like my work needs to take me to places that need to be um, remediated, I guess. That's where I need to go. I mean, if where I dream to go, I really would like to. I would like to go to a temple, maybe a Tibetan temple, a temple where the the, the calligraphic process is still rich and being used. And I want to be part of. I want to see what that ritual is, and I want to feel it when I see it being executed. Um, I think that that is really. Uh, it's beautiful, uh, the beautiful ceremony of it, the beautiful thought behind it, um, the beautiful intention set before you put pen to paper or brush to paper. I want to understand that better. And I don't know if that's a place. Maybe it's a process that I can, you know, need to execute in my own life. Um, it probably is. But still, <laughs> that's sort of a place I'd like to go. <laughs> that actually kind of reminds me of Zhang Quan. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, she is a nun in South Korea, um, but she was actually featured on Chef's Table, the Netflix series, and her practice when it comes to cooking and, you know, the entire, entire process that goes behind the fermentation of the plants. And they have something which I'm really interested in right now. It's like the five pungent roots and how across like the spectrum of Hinduism and you know within countries such as like Vietnam and like China they have there's this overlap of Ayurvedic medicine and traditional Chinese medicine and the entire perspective of 
uh, within the yoga practice as well where you have the yin organs and I don't know I could send it through to you like her episode is I, I found it beautiful the way she she reminds me of the way that you work as well but her you know her and her food yeah 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 I mean yeah I mean you know it's so much of it is really about I mean the ceremony it's, it's the ceremony is so special and things um, and it's one of the things I feel always feel drawn to Japanese aesthetic um, and like so many like you know like the, the the tea ceremony and the perfect the perfect imperfection of thing like those things really speak to me in like the process and I would like to get closer to understanding that and I don't know like I say I don't know if that's a physical closeness or a some other kind of closeness, but yeah, that would be, that would be some, that would be, that would be, that would be great. The post that you recently put out, um, because I feel like as there is this increase of awareness surrounding sustainable crafts and just this general shift into slow movement, we're intentionally seeking out to implement within our own lives and like, how have you found, have you found there to be a growing demand for the knowledge that you're putting out there? Like on a business front, would you say be looking to expand on ink production? Yeah. Well, you know, I, and, you know, art, I put in quotation marks as being, you know, whatever, a commodity that's exchanged by rich people after the artist has died. It's yeah. sort of what I hate. That's the quote around art that I hate. I love art. You know, I think art's beautiful. Um, I'm, I'm an etymologist in a way. I like to study the roots of words, and art really just means something that people made. So, uh, yeah, I like. So, in that sense, my ink is art. I'm making ink, um, and I. True. I, I mean, I don't want to make art in that sense, but I do want to make ink um, because I feel like it is a craft um, and a beautiful function of. Uh, hmm, a demand. Okay, I'm sorry. I got distracted. Um, the, the demand. I'm in this beautiful burnt uh, pine forest, and all the needles have fallen on the ground, and it's completely brown and black, and I love it. So I'm, I'm sort of getting overwhelmed by my physical surroundings. <laughs> oh no, this is perfect. I'm, I'm capturing this on podcast. <laughs> okay, good. Um, but to get, so your question is um, whether there's more of a demand for my stuff in the sort of um, in reflecting where we're going to where we're going where we're shifting to as a society. I think that there is. I think the people. I think that. Well, first of all, I'm very. I'm not a good promoter of myself for the same reasons that you know I don't like to make art. You know, I don't like the shameless self promotion of things. Um, and that sort of goes back to my whole, like, you know, wanting to eliminate the ego of my, uh, my work. Um, so I, <clears throat> I do feel like people appreciate that. And I do feel a lot of support from people who, who um, appreciate that. And that do value the process that I put, um, that I use to make what I make, um, and also, I feel like they respect the fact that, I, well, for a lot of the parts, a lot of the reasons, I I make inks easily because there's only one time a year that I really feel good about harvesting sumac leaves, um, and after that, I start making the ink. So, um, you know, 
as far as like scaling up production, that's sort of a limiting factor. You know, I also feel like when I scale up production, my products suffer for sure. Um, small batches are definitely where it's at uh, as far as like making something quality. Um, so I don't know. Um, I would like, I guess in the ideal world, I would like to be able to exist solely as an ink maker, ink blot creator. And I would like for that to happen. And I think probably through social media and the sale of internet stuff, it may happen. Um, I'm also into just making trades. I like trading people for stuff. Um, recently, I've been into sending people things and then returning gravestone rubbings that I want from different cities. Um, oh, wow. Which has been really, really wonderful. I mean, I love bartering things as a way because like you know everything's an empty signifier money's an empty signifier there's no intrinsic value it's all like sort of just like i think this is worth this yeah and with what i've recently made i've been making these little scrolls sort of like a scenic writing ink blood scrolls that i've been selling and i you know I, I did a few trades with people to give stuff and one of them was an artist and i was like you know i was like i'm thinking about maybe selling these what do you think i should sell them for he's like a hundred dollars I'm like, what? I was like, you know, I wasn't thinking like that much. Well, he's like, well, no less than 75. But I'm like, you know, it's just ink and paper. I feel like it's just, you know, it can't be that much. (laughs) Um, And then there was this whole conversation I had with my boyfriend about like, you know, what is like, uh, what is um, the value? You know, when when artists put prices on their things, it's like you're expressing what you think your value of as an artist is. So if you make cheap artwork, you're saying, I'm a cheap artist. And I just reject that. I just like, I reject that because, I don't know, it's just like it ties into like this elitist idea of what artists are. Like, you know, and like this whole like thing of like, it's all just, it's just all this arbitrary like puffing of, of value, um, which means nothing to me. So I was like, you know, these aren't art, 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 object, art, art objects anymore. They're devotional objects because what I do is a part of like my, my spiritual practice. And it is something that I think has um, importance to other people. Um, and I want it to be affordable because I think it should be affordable. Um, now, you know, by being that decision, I uh, I've definitely like, you know, limited my ability to live off of what I'm making. <laughs> um, but that's fine. I mean, I'm okay with that. I, 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 of course, I'm in a position right now, like I say, you know, and I have this other job that sort of augments um, my work with ink. Um, so I'm in the position where I can do that. I mean, ultimately, maybe it'd be great if I could, like, you know, sustain myself entirely off of my weirdo visions um but (laughs) right now i I feel comfortable like saying i want things to be cheap i want people to be able to buy them and if they think that i'm cheap as an artist or whatever fine whatever then that's like their that's their view that's their like you know they're sort of you know they have have their own work they need to go through to figure out (laughs) their value systems (laughs) yeah it's just a reflection upon themselves and this age-old, age-old kind of view of everything is based off of the value of the dollar. And I just feel like your artwork, going back to it being this invitation, and you, by you making it, say, this bit much more accessible, that, that adds to the value. That speaks to where you are at and the concept of it being an invitation. 
And yeah, it's it's hard wrestling between the expression of self and still trying, and it's intrinsically tied to your being, and still trying to like objectively establish yourself within a consumerist ecosystem. Yeah. 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 Um, and then you know it touches and, and like and tying it back to money, you know it touches it's something that I've always found fascinating too, and also ties into a lot of my ink studies where I'm reading about ink is the idea of counterfeiting um, and like making and forging. And like making like these lies, so to speak, um, on paper that pass as either currency or something of value, and sometimes you know that can even that that develops into an art unto itself that is also beautiful. I mean, all money is is just a piece of paper with ink on it that we all agree it values something. Um, it's that mutual agreement. That's the only thing that holds that thing up as an object. Our mutual agreement on what this abstract object is, and I mean, I guess that's what, and I think that you know, that's what art should be. I mean, it was our mutual agreement that something's beautiful. Like if something's really beautiful, and a lot of people think it's really beautiful, I mean, that object is invested with the power of our of our putting beauty into it. But like, if you have something that has value to it, because Oh well, it's you know associated with this personality, and this personality was very successful, and this personality has you know <clears throat> is commodifiable. Um, that's why this is very expensive. Without it, by ignoring like you know what people actually feel about the object, then that's like taking the power away from like the people's view and putting it into like okay, this is actually like a giant you know two hundred thousand dollar bill essentially. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, like, it's really, it's about playing with value. I've even thought about making my own, like, currency of inkblot on paper, like, where I'm like, this represents a value, and, uh, you know, I'm going to use this as an exchange for things, um, which is sort of what I was doing when I was doing bartering. I was like, yeah, here, take this and give me this in exchange. (laughs) Um, it's all just so fun to play with, like... You know, I know there's there's counterfeit artists out there that do pretty uh, great stuff and love to mess around with the establishment. Um, but uh, I wouldn't even say that they're not weirdo ideas to be wanting to make a living off of this because even just expanding upon you being an ink maker and that's not solely a form of revenue that you could depend on. I mean, like I've been sitting here for basically two hours just. Just completely geeking out at you being an entire encyclopedia. If you could be doing panels on this, I don't know if that's something that you would be interested in expanding on, but, I mean, I could listen to you forever. You have so much to offer. And that speaks to the ink not solely as its, you know, physical form, but the heritage that you've been talking about, the the roots... And from where it came and the representation, the symbolism and all this, the way it ties into the natural world. I find it beautiful. And yeah, I mean, you're amazing. Thanks. I mean, I would love to get on a lecture circuit. That'd be awesome. Um, I just have, uh, you know, I guess I just need to um, forge some credentials of some sort, (laughs) which I'd love to do. They'd be inkblots on paper. I'd say, these are my credentials. Yeah. I mean. (laughs) Read it to them what you think. I mean, like, if you had, say, like a website or blog. Everyone's like, you need to have a website, you need to have a website, you need to have a website. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, 
and when I started my Instagram account, it was really sort of like a step in that direction. Like, okay, well, let's gauge the interest of, you know, me pretty much taking pictures of bottles of a dark liquid <laughs> over and over again for a little while. Um, and, uh, you know, the response has grown a lot. I mean, I, you know, I have like a thousand people following me and I never thought that like I had that many people that were interested in, of course, I don't know how many of them are actually interested or just following me for fun. Um, but like, I didn't think there would be that much interest in what I do and what I think and what my philosophy is regarding um, my my process. Um, and yeah, you know, I've talked about I thought about making a website, um, but you know, it's funny because um, right now, I mean, we're transitioning away from ink and paper as a society into um, pixels on a screen. Um, oh. and that is not, not lost on me. Um, and, uh, actually my whole Instagram account started as a, a handwritten long bill that I would send to my friends up in the mountains, <laughs> um, that just had like uh, articles that I would write about, like that I thought were interesting. And it was sort of like my little publication. Um, but eventually it got to where my hand was just so cramped up, up when I was writing, the, writing it. I was like, I just, I, I'm going to go ahead and break bed and get a, get online. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I had to do it. And, and I'm glad I did because, you know, it really does reach more people than the two people I was writing to in the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean like that, it's not lost to me. Like this whole, like the irony of like, well, I'm going to make a website, which has, you know, is like the next phase of, um, the written word or the post literate world or whatever it is that's coming up. Um, but you know, I still feel like it's important to have, so the project that I'm working on right now too, I'm about when I get off the phone is I'm working on a mobile, um, a mobile ink vending stand with wheels and all this stuff to where I can compound inks on site. Oh, wow. Um, in the physical world. Um, and in my fantasy world, I'm like, this gives me sort of like the quote unquote brick and mortar presence that I want to have in addition to what will probably be the bread and butter of my existence is online, you know, making my, making a living online through sales of my uh, products. Um, but I feel like I can't just be like this thing online. You know, I feel like the whole, like, you know, it's important to me to be personally um, involved in transactions with people. I mean, it's yeah. vital, really. Yeah, that um, human connection. Um, so, like, yeah, I mean, and it's a bit of a fantasy. Um, I think about, you know, I think street culture a lot back in New Orleans, it was very much really a real thing. Not so much here. Um, but uh, so I'm building this thing sort of like in this with like these these lofty ideas of like somehow traveling with it and becoming a, an ink monger on the, in the on the square, um, which is delightfully anachronistic and probably not too um, financially uh, lucrative. Um, but hey, whatever. I like I, I, I want to live in the world I want to live. In, so there you go. You see across the board where people who they're seeing, not necessarily even looking at the market from such a technical set standpoint, but they're saying, hey, there is this thing that is that doesn't exist, and I want it, so I'm going to make it. And, you know, people are stepping into themselves. They are aligning with themselves. And when you are coming from an authentic place, you see that people resonate with that. 
you're seeing that translate on your social media. And, I mean, I wouldn't call it a fantasy. People are doing amazing things. I can only just be a cheerleader. Like, you're, yeah, you have all the means to do this. Yeah, I do. And that was, you know, it's funny. I was talking my astrology friend that I was telling you about that, um, I was talking to last night, actually. It was like, you know, all you, you need to, once you'll be surprised. Once you start being yourself and putting yourself and being true to yourself in the physical world, you'll be amazed at how much um, support and ease with which um, you can live. And I'm still learning that lesson. I'm still trying to work with it. Um, uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's true. I do. I, you know, it, 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 sometimes I need a little bit of a pet talk to, to about it because um, I can try and explain what I'm doing to, like, you know, one of my coworkers or something, and they sort of just glaze over and like, uh, what? So you're making? Okay, I got it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they, you know, they, they sort of miss the finer points of like what my work is really about. So it's always good. And like talking with you has been really great also, just because more often than not, I'm like hallucinating in a vacuum, an echo chamber where like, I'm like thinking these thoughts and they're bouncing off and they get more and more distilled and become like this, you know, very individualized thing. I still feel like it needs to, uh, something that I want to express and share with someone and uh, finding vocabulary to do that. Um, it's hard when you don't have anyone to talk to. We see how integral our environment is. We are a product of our, our environment. When you step into yourself, you are saying, I am worthy of this. And as, as your friend said, the flow is amazing. But when it's like you're kind of denying that and still putting up those, like those barriers, it's saying, this is where my worth is at, and so this is where it's going to continue. It's hard because, as you said, there is safety within job environment that you have to take into consideration. And, you know, when you don't have a really big community that around you and the people who are around you are kind of looking at what you're doing and raising your, their eyebrows, that's tough. That's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, and I think, you know, I rally to it. You know, I like, you know, I sometimes wonder if I could have done this if I were, like, still, like, in, like, say, New Orleans and I was still entrenched in, like, this creative click scene thing. Um, like, would, would, would I have come here or would I still be, like, I don't know, just going with the flow of, like, whatever the scene was, you know? Um, I kind of feel like, in a way... The, I guess I could say adversity, um, seems a little strong, but the adversity of living here, the isolation of living here, and um, like having to find my own personal mythology path thing um, has helped me to develop this, like the whole, my whole views now on yeah. things. Um, so, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah you know, I, I can talk about, like, yeah, you know, whatever. I mean, this fortress of ignorance around here, but like, in reality, I need to give it due, um, and like being responsible for what I've become, also, but also recognizing its limitations. Yeah, the good <laughs> and the bad. Yeah. In closing, if you could give an example of a time in your life where it was guts versus logic, and you went with your gut. Yeah. Well. Um, I sometimes have a different, a hard time differentiating between 
my gut, my heart, and my intellect brain part. Um, the uh, but there was a point where I was eighteen or so. Things I sort of become an art school flunky. I sort of like got kicked out of art school. Um, I started doing bad kid stuff, um, and you know I was like, where where am I going? What am I doing? And I had heard about this place um, in Tennessee that was like sort of like a, a supporting artistic um, and queer friendly space. And uh, of course, I had no experience with that in my life whatsoever because I was, you know, raised in the rural South in a really, you know, distressed part of the part of the state, and you know, was pretty much like, you know, had to survive. Um, in like this duplicitous environment or in a duplicitous form. <laughs> um, and I was like, I'm going to do this. I need to do this. Um, I went there sight unseen, lived there for, I don't know, maybe about six months, met someone that I fell in love with and moved to New Orleans. And that sort of like set the course of my life. You know, um, my adult formative years were there. It, uh, it, 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 it you know, if, and that was really, it was essentially, um, a gut reaction. I was like, I can't do this. I cannot go on um, living the way I am without without acknowledging this part of me and like figuring out how it interacts, talking to other people with, like you know, with my perspective. And um, I need to do this for my for my spirit, for my spiritual health. And I, you know, I don't regret it at all. Sure, I can say like, you know. I never finished art school. <laughs> I didn't go on to have like, you know, a gallery or whatever what was supposed to be, I was supposed to be doing um, with an art degree. <laughs> um, and I think uh, I'm, I'm still, still totally happy with, with with the way things turned out. And I, and I think that that sort of set the course for me in a lot of ways. Like I, I think like that was the example where I was like, I need to trust in myself to know what I need to do. And I need to know, like, if a job's not working out for me, no matter if there's a promise of something else in the future, if I, you know, if my, if I, my instinct is to no longer be there, then I need to leave. Even if that means, like, okay, you're going to eat ramen noodles for a long time now until you find another job. It's just that important to me. Um, it's... Uh, my astrologist, my astrologer friend, would probably say maybe it's a Sagittarius to me, um, but it is. Don't fence me in. I don't like being fenced in. I don't like to have to be. Um, I don't like being told that this is the path I have to be on. Um, I don't buy that uh, unless it's coming from my gut, and then I buy that totally, yeah, wholeheartedly. The only salesperson I'd listen to, my gut. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And you know, uh, that's funny. Rumpelstiltskin, the guy who made the food dehydrator, and this is actually something I don't usually quote. See, I don't know people that are on like um, the shopping network, <laughs> but he said something to me that really resonated, and it was like the best salesman is the salesman that believes in his product. And I was like, you know, you're right. It's true. You got to believe, in it. and but it's like not about selling. That wasn't the selling part of that of that saying that got to me. It was like the belief in something. Yeah, and um, and it's sort of it, it's sort of like it's related to like you know, do what you love and you never work a day in your life, sort of thing. Uh, like there's wisdom in that, even from Ron Popeil, the guy who made the booty head. <laughs> yeah, even from him. <laughs> this is Thomas Little, Guts and Glory, signing off. 
This was The Rural Pen with Thomas Little. Refer to the show notes to further get to know our guest. Share your thoughts and show us some love by subscribing or get in touch to be featured on the podcast. Released every other Monday, thanks for lending us an ear. Passing on the mic.